Good evening. My name is Kobina Safu. I'm a librarian here at the Indo Prefree Library, and I'm from West Africa also, Ghana. The Indo Prefree Library is honored to host Mr. Ishmael Baird tonight. Our guest tonight was born in Sierra Leone, West Africa. He is the New York Times best-selling author of A Long Way Gone, Memoirs of a Boy Soldier. Mr. Beer is a UNICEF ambassador and advocate for children affected by war, a member of the Human Rights Watch Children Advisory Committee, visiting senior research fellow at the Center for the Study of Genocide, Conflict, Resolution, and Human Rights at Rutgers University. He is also the president of the Ishmael Bear Foundation, dedicated to helping former child soldiers find new lives by reintegrating into society. His first novel, Radiance of Tomorrow, was named one of the Christian Science Monitor's best fiction of 2014. Sarah Corbett, contributing writer for the New York Times Sunday Review, says that Radiance of Tomorrow is not a story of Exodus, but rather a real look at the phenomena of homecoming and reclamation, written with moral urgency of a parable and a searing precision of a first-hand account. Writer, editor, and publisher Dave Eggers calls Ishmael Beer arguably the most read African writer in contemporary literature. With the gentle lyricism of a dream and the moral clarity of a fable, Radiance of Tomorrow is a powerful novel about preserving what means the most to us and even in uncertain times. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Ishmael Beer. Good evening. Thank you. Um, thank you for the wonderful introduction, uh, my fellow West African. Um, it is good to be here, and I, I want to extend my gratitude to all of you for uh, coming here this evening. Uh, what I'm going to do is to speak a little bit about this novel, but I think to preface it with really my emergence as a writer and some of the reasons how that, uh, uh, how that came about. Uh, and then I would do a few readings from this novel and then leave ample time so that we can have a discussion. You can ask questions, and hopefully I will be able to provide some answers for you. Um, as you all know, uh, I was born in Sierra Leone in West Africa, and um, there we had a war uh, many years ago, uh, unfortunately for about 11 years. And during that war, I was... Uh, Myself and a few other young people had the misfortune of being dragged into that madness. Uh, and uh, some of us luckily survived. Uh, so for me, writing really started and the, the thought of it began when I was adopted into a family in the United States, uh, in New York. And uh, I finally arrived to live in this country. And my mother decided to take me to various schools to apply for school. Um, and most schools would not take me uh, for one reason, because I did not have a report card. And the question was asked repeatedly, and I, I remember the conversation, 
with them, they would say, so do you have a report card? And I would say, I, I don't have one. And they would say, well, everyone has a report card. And I say, well, I know a lot of people who do not have report cards. And so, <laughs> but when this was happening the whole time in my head, I was thinking uh, these people did not necessarily understand the context of war, what happens. It's not as if during war you're thinking to yourself, you know I must keep my report card in my back pocket uh, while people are shooting at you and trying to kill you. Uh, if you're lucky, you get out with your life. So you're not thinking about your report card. So one of the first writings that I did in this country was uh, an essay that was titled Why I Do Not Have a Report Card. It was very self-explanatory. And the idea was trying to address this question that was asked of me each time I applied for school. And in there, I tried to talk about where I was coming from, what my background was. Um, As I was completing my uh, high school also, there was a, a requirement for people to bring a, a baby picture for their yearbook in, in school. And I was the only person who could not provide such a thing. Perhaps uh, simple paraphernalia such as those that people may take for granted, I could not provide one. And my friends, uh, who did not know about my background at the time, uh, only guessed that uh, the assumptions were that I may have been a very ugly baby, hence I'd refused to, <laughs> to provide a baby picture. <laughs> But so what I did was that I wrote uh, a little poem and made it into into a little structure that could fit where my picture could have been so that, uh, and that uh, baby picture was, I mean, that uh, poem was sort of an imagination of what I felt I may have looked like as a baby. I didn't, I don't know, of course. So for me, I guess these two uh, anecdotes are really to illustrate that for me, writing then became a way to bring to life the things that I could not provide physically to people, to use words to explain that I'd existed prior to when people encountered me, and to give context to where I was coming from, my culture, its beauty, its difficulties, to insert the necessary humanity that was often missing in the way it was presented in the media particularly. So writing became that for me, and that's when I began to see the power, I began to take it seriously. So when I was in university, I started writing, uh, of course, I never wanted to publish. My writing were mostly to prepare myself uh, uh, to be able to succinctly and uh, intelligently engage in a debate if I had the opportunity. So my, when my first book came out of that desire to write and put things down so that I'd be able to prepare myself. And of course, when I graduated, I wanted to go to law school and all the rest of it. And then I, I had a book deal. Uh, and then that book came out a long way gone and took a life of its own, something that I did not imagine. And it actually became, uh, to my, much to my surprise, it, was, uh, <laughs> it took flight in its own way. I remember when, um, uh, before the book came out, um, uh, there was an excerpt of it in the New York Times magazine. And I went uh, to get my picture taken, and the fellow who was taking my photograph said to me, you better... Uh, buy some sunglasses and a hat. And I did not really understand what that meant. You know, so I just laughed and I thought, all right, I'm not sure why he's saying this. Um, not long after, uh, I was on a train. I was living in Brooklyn at the time and I was on the train coming back into Manhattan. And literally everyone across from me in the row had this magazine reading it and my face was on the <laughs> cover right there in front of me. So I realized that I immediately hit me that this is what this fellow had meant. So I got off the next stop and of course bought myself a, some, a hat and some sunglasses to escape. And when the book came out, a long way gone, the, the memoir, 
Uh, I remember also taking the train and people would say to me, hey, where are you from? And I would know immediately that they were asking to know whether I was the one who wrote the book. So I decided to play with it a little bit, you know, to see what I would say. Uh, I'm from Brooklyn, you know, and they would say, do you know Sierra Leone? I was like, yeah, it's some country in West Africa. And they'd be like, yeah, you look like this guy who wrote this book, you know. <laughs> and then and then I'd say, what is this book about? And they would tell me what the book about. And they would tell me, you should read this book. You should really read this book. <laughs> you know, so I found it really funny. So sometimes I played around with it, you know. <laughs> and if my friends were with me, then they would give me up at some point. Uh, but um, Anyway, this was my emergence really into writing. And also for me, it became more the urgency when I decided to publish my first book was more, again, as I mentioned, I was trying to correct some of the things that were said about my country and about somebody like me coming from an experience of being a child soldier. Uh, there are a lot of assumptions, people saying that people like us were the lost generation. Uh, we were time bombs waiting to explode. We would not be able to recover at all. And I thought to myself, most of the people who were making these assumptions, if I, uh, uh, my path crossed them anywhere in the city in the United States, if I had not said anything about who I am, they would never in their widest imagination know that I'd, I'd gone through such a thing. Uh, and here I was in, in university going on with my life. So I wanted people to understand not only how people are dragged into war, but also how people come out of it. And I also began to observe that for a good number of people, their initial encounter with most African countries comes about because of some kind of problem. You know, whether it's a civil war, uh, health crisis. And so their um, uh, sort of mental picture uh, of that place becomes that particular uh, incident. So there's no uh, sort of a context, particularly any human context. I remember when I written the first book and people um, would read it and they would say to me, well, I didn't know that you guys were reading Shakespeare in Sierra Leone or I didn't know that you guys were, in, were uh, listening to American hip-hop music. And I would look at them and laugh and think that we're, we're really, we live on the same earth as you guys. We're not on some other planet. So <laughs> we are connected in the same way. Some things may come much later, but we are. And so for me, those human contexts were missing because when you bring people closer to it with images, with words, then it no longer just becomes a faceless issue or somebody who is somewhere uh, far away but rather it becomes, this could have been my brother, this could be my sister, this could be my child, you know, and it becomes that personal. So for me, that's, that's what I wanted to use my writing to bridge. Now, after this book came out, the first one, and I was on the road for it for quite a long time, uh, I began to observe something else that uh, uh, gave me the, the thinking that I needed to write a novel to address another issue, which was that, um, as soon as wars end or some sort of calamity ends in a country uh, or in a part of the world, the media attention shifts to another equally disturbing issue. Uh, and nobody then cares about that place. What happens when the gun silence? What happens when whatever the difficulties ends? Why do people go back home after war? What is the nostalgia that draws people home? And when they return, how do they begin to live again? Is it possible that they could go back to the way their lives had been? If not, what kind of life do they uh, find for themselves? What values do they embrace? Which ones do they throw out? 
And so I began to ask myself these questions, and I set out to write a novel to address some of these things. How do you move towards the future when the past is still very raw and pulling at you? For example, if you think about it, when wars end and people return, or during war, particularly a civil war, like the one we had in Sierra Leone, when people were killed during war, everybody's running for their lives, so nobody's stopping to bury anyone. So when you return to your town or village, you have to even start by cleaning the bones of the people that have been killed to make it livable again. People don't think about these things at all. They think you just return and everything is sort of nice, you know. Um, so I wanted to ask this question. So this novel is really set around this issue. So it opens up with a, with a woman... Uh, an older woman uh, coming into the, this village that became a town and reconnecting with the land again and, and various characters returning from grandparents uh, to parents uh, mothers who had lost their children who had come looking for them to former child soldiers to a young woman who had been pregnant during the war and now returned with a child from that war and after it, also neighbors coming who had been on different sides of the war. Some have hurt each other, and now they are returning and learning to live together again. And so this town comes alive, and then, of course, it begins to face newer issues again, uh, as life is. But one of the things that these characters will challenge you, really, uh, in this novel is also this idea of happiness, to understand that uh, happiness is not the absence of a challenge or challenges in one's life, but rather... It's with those challenges, the ability to seize those simple moments and enjoy them fully. Even with those challenges, people still love each other. They fall in love. They make family. They wake up in the morning and do remarkable things with the backdrop of those challenges. So, but I think uh, generally our uh, conception of happiness is, is this continuum. If, if I'm happy for one year with no interruption, it means I'm happy. If one day there's a small interruption, I'm no longer happy. <laughs> so these characters will challenge you to, 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 to think differently about what happiness is. So what I'm going to do is that I'm going to introduce you to some of them. But before I do that, I, I want to speak about language a little bit. Because the writing of this novel... Uh, when I thought about it and when I wanted to write it, I also realized that I wanted to borrow from the oral tradition, which is what I grew up in. Uh, when I was a little boy, before I knew I could be a writer, each evening I would sit around the fire and the elders in my community, particularly mostly women, uh, grandmothers, uh, mothers would tell stories, and also grandfathers and other people. And these were stories that taught us how to prepare ourselves for life how to assume the roles that were needed of us in our community. But story, we believe in my culture, we believe stories are medicine, that they are poured into you to prepare you so that you'll be able to face life. Uh, or as my grandmother would put it, uh, stories are put in you so that they can strengthen your backbone so that the wind of despair would not break you. Um, so... Uh, I grew up in this context. Every evening I'll hear all kinds of stories. So even before I could read or write, I knew narrative structure because of this oral tradition. Um, sometimes stories were told uh, on all forms, funny ones, scary ones to the point that you did not want to leave to go to the bathroom. But people were very good because when you tell a story orally, you have to capture somebody's imagination and keep them in the landscape of that story. And there are various techniques that, that were used. Uh, one of them was that if they wanted to tell a new story, they would retell an older story that would heard so many times. And during that telling, they would deliberately change the facts to that story. If no one in the audience protested, they knew nobody was listening. So they wouldn't tell you the new story. 
It meant you weren't ready to take in the new story. Um, in addition to this, my early training also started with my father, really. Uh, when I was about seven, eight years old, my father would play a game with me, um, wherein he would uh, lower himself when he came from work. He would sit on his knees, and I would climb on his shoulders, and he would stand up, and he would play a game where he pretended to be a blind man. And I was his guide, and I had to direct him to what we were doing, where we were going. Uh, and he would really make it very difficult for me. My father wasn't one of those people who allow your child to just... <laughs> Even when I was a kid, I played little uh, football, soccer matches against him. He never let us win at all, my older brother and I. <laughs> so he was not one that would give you stuff quite easily. Um, so he would stand up, and then I would say, let's go forward. Uh, we'll be on our way to the town square. And he would say, well, I'm a blind man. I don't know what go means. What, what am I supposed to do? And I would think in my little head and be like, why this guy doesn't understand to go forward, you know? And I would say to him, well, can you hear the sound that's coming from the town square? And he would say, yes. And I would say to him, what is the most natural thing that you would want to do to go towards that sound? And then he would move his foot. And then I would say, then keep repeating that pattern. And then we start walking. And he would pretend to walk into a wall. And I would tell him, oh, it's a wall. And he would tell me, what is a wall? Sometimes in a fire. And through this, I learned very early on to, 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 to explain, to bring people into things that I was seeing. Uh, and to, through visual cues, to allow them to understand and feel certain things. When I started school uh, in my community and I became one of the, the literate boys, I also uh, had a task of reading and writing letters for people. And this was also really, in retrospect, my, one of my early trainings, really. Uh, I wasn't one of those people who grew up knowing I wanted to be a writer. I didn't, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but this was my early training, really, because when people would come uh, to tell me to write letters for them or to read letters for them, I needed to get at what the heart of things were, uh, you know, so not only to beat around the bush, but also e explain what it is that they wanted to say or also explain to them what it is that somebody else had said. Uh, as a young boy, I received money for some of these letters that I wrote. And I realized that the, I received, the higher the payment was, it was because somebody had told me a secret that was much deeper. So I knew the secret of my community. So if somebody told me a really big secret, then they gave me more money. <laughs> I guess so the payment was not necessary to write the letter, but rather to keep the secret. I quickly realized. But I remember there was one instance where uh, a mother wanted her son to return from the capital city. And she came to me to write a letter. And she started by saying, can you tell my son, the one that I was pregnant with for X number of months. And during those months, these are all the pains that I went through. And when he was about to be born, he didn't come so easily. And these are all the pains that I went through. And when he was a young boy, he went to the river, he shot in his pants, and he did all this, so all of these things. Tell him, you know, you know, he, you know, I want him to return home. So I'm thinking to myself, do I write all of these things to this fellow who may know that I know that these are the things? <laughs> or should I just get to the point? So I just said, you must come home now. Your mother really misses you. <laughs> so that was sufficient. <laughs> So also at a young age, I realize you have to cut through some of it and get to the point, you know. Um, so these were my, uh, my, my, my early initial trainings uh, of, uh, of knowing language. So when I was writing this book, I wanted to borrow from this oral tradition. Uh, as a boy, uh, Sierra Leone is a former British colony. 
uh, when we were going to school there, when I was a boy, uh, and I was, you know, uh, we were told that English was the only language through which you could express yourself uh, in written form, and that uh, our languages were not uh, good. So we were kind of following this tradition of disbelieving in our own culture, in our own languages, and the beauty of it. Uh, and I remember even as a boy when you were in school, and you were asked, you spoke English and you spoke one of your languages, which in Sierra Leone we have many, you were punished. It was called your speaking vernacular. And so when I started writing, I realized that although the English language is amazing in its own way, that sometimes it is not sufficient to express certain emotions and feelings about certain landscapes. So then I decided during writing this novel that I'm going to find a middle ground, which is I'm going to find the English equivalent of things that I want to say if they cannot translate or fight to, to, to capture this. So, for example, in Mende, so when you read this novel, you will see that the way sentences are rendered is deliberate. It's not your traditional flow of English language, and that's the beauty in it as well. Uh, for example, in Mende, my, my uh, mother tongue and my, my tribe and my first language how you say night came suddenly. If I had a choice to say night came suddenly in English, in Mende, if I translate it, it means the sky rolled over and changed its sides. So, of course, I would choose the latter because it makes you think a little bit. Now, if you, um, there are various ways to say many things. A ball, for example, in Mende, in English, you say a ball. In Mende, when we speak about things, we also speak about the components of that object. So, for example, in Mende, a, a ball is called fefete, which means a nest of air, or a vessel that carries air. So if I were to say the children kicked around a nest of air, or a vessel that carries air, it, it makes you stop and think, where am I? What is this? So you can be in the story more. Um, there are various ways. How you say your thoughts are scattered. You say your mind is like an anthill filled with smoke. If you think about it, you take firewood and you put in an ant, the ants will start running in different directions. So it shows how scattered your thoughts are. How you talk about somebody's age could be various ways, but one of them was to des is to describe the color of their hair. And you will not just say their hair is white. You will say uh, the person's hair was the color of stagnant clouds, which means white. Right? So it paints pictures for you so that you can visualize certain things. Uh, how you indicate time is also very different. When you're telling a story in Mende, you would not say it was 4 o'clock or 2 o'clock or 9 a.m. You would not say that. You would just say certain things and people would know what time it was. So there are various ways. One is to talk about the sun in relationship to the human shadow. In the morning, your shadow is behind you. As the day progresses, your shadow begins to move. At different times of the day, you can see where your shadow is. So when you're telling a story, you will say this person's shadow was on the left on their left-hand side, and people would know that it was this time of the day. So that's one way. Another way is also with sounds in Mende, uh, which is very difficult to translate. So when you say, for example, you will say, he was running, tuk, 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 or she was running, these are two different times. Tuk, 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 tuk means the person was running during the daytime. means the person was running at nighttime. So let me explain. Tuk, tuk, when you run during the day, your footsteps are lighter. They're not as heavier, the sounds of them, because other sounds are competing during the day. There are birds singing, somebody's chopping firewood, maybe a vehicle goes by. So your footsteps, though they're heavier, they're not as audible to the human ear. So hence the tuk-tuk-tuk. At night, because other sounds have quieted, 
your footsteps are heavier. Now, the way we can all relate to this, because we live in cities, if you live below in an apartment with a very thin, uh, <laughs> yeah, at nighttime when somebody walks up and down, you are more conscious of the, and you hear it more than during the daytime, because you're not even paying attention, right? So hence that. So when somebody was telling a story, they would just make those sound, and people would know it was nighttime. So when I was writing, I tried to bring, incorporate all of these things into this novel. Now, as you move closer to the capital city in this novel, uh, the language changes. Because the closer you are to the big cities, your Mende, your Timini, or whatever language you speak in Sierra Leone becomes more uh, filled with English words. Uh, so, for example, if you are in the capital city and you talk about a bicycle, you would say, oh, I was taking a bicycle in Mende. So you use the word bicycle. But if you are deep in the countryside, uh, you use a different word because your, your, your English is not anglicized there. And the word for bicycle, there is no word because we do not have it in our culture. It's something that came in. So what we did is that uh, the language uh, chose a sound for it. The kind of bicycles that we have are these old Chinese bikes that, and when you ring the bell, it goes gerigenje, gerigenje. So the name of a bicycle is called gerigenje, which is the sound that it makes. So, <laughs> so when I'm writing, I'm very conscious, particularly I'm a writer who feels that language has to fit landscape. So I try to bring that to you, to that. And lastly, before I read a few things here and there, um, when I write also, my writing is that uh, I grew up in the natural world. I grew up in a village, you know, I, 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 I was very much in tune with nature. So I also understand how uh, the spirit of the natural world, that the natural world exists and it has its own magic. So when I write, nature is a character also in my writing. It's not just a bystander. So the way the trees sway, the way the, the wind would move, the way the path awakens because people's bare feet are touching it. These are all things that I bring alive because I've seen how nature behaves in, in correspondence to how human beings are functioning on it. You know? uh, for example, during the war, uh, when you went through a town or a village and there were gunshots everywhere, you could not hear the birds singing. The birds departed when the gunshots began. So you could feel that nature itself was afraid of what was unfolding. So when I write, I'm aware of these things. So now I'm going to read a little bit here and there uh, to introduce you to some of these characters. I'm going to start from the beginning. Um, and if you are following along uh, and you, you lose me, it's because I jumped to a random page. So it's not because you have a different version of the book. <laughs> I don't want you to worry. I've had that question before. So... <clears throat> It is the end or maybe the beginning of another story. Every story begins and ends with a woman, a mother, a grandmother, a girl, a child. Every story is a birth. She was the first to arrive where it seemed the wind no longer exhaled. Several miles from town, the trees had entangled one another. Their branches grew toward the ground, burying the leaves in the soil to blind their eyes so the sun would not promise them tomorrow with its rays. It was only the path that was reluctant to cloak its surface completely with grasses, as though it anticipated it would soon end its starvation for the warmth of bare feet that gave it life. The long and winding paths were spoken of as snakes that one walked upon to encounter life or to arrive at the places where life lived. Like snakes, the paths were now ready to shed their old skins for new ones, and such occurrences take time with the necessary interruptions. Today, 
her feet began one of those interruptions. It may be that those whose years have many seasons are always the first to rekindle their broken friendship with the land, or it may just have happened this way. Finally, she arrived at the quiet town without being greeted by the crows of cocks, the voices of children playing games, the sound of a blacksmith hitting a red-hot iron to make a tool, or the rise of smoke from fireplaces. Even without these signals of a time that seemed far gone, she was so happy to be home that she found herself running to her house, her legs suddenly gaining more strength for her age. Alas, as she reached her home, she began to weep. The song from the past had abruptly left her tongue. Her house had been burnt a while back, and the remaining pillars were still dark from the smoke. Tears consumed her deep brown eyes and slowly rolled down her long face until her sharp cheekbones were soaked. She wept to accept what she knew had happened, but also to allow her tears to drop on the ground and call on those gone to return in the spirit form. She wept now because she hadn't been able to do so for seven years, as staying alive required part in all familiar ways of living during the years when the guns took words out of the mouth of the elders. So that's the opening of uh, one of the, um, the older women who is returning to town. And this character, Mamakadi, I tried to imagine uh, around my grandmother. I tried to imagine what it, it would have felt like for my grandmother to return. Uh, and so that's really where the imagination came from. Um, and as she returns, of course, other people join her in the town. And you see also the hesitations that occur uh, before war. Uh, everything that you know has its own place and its own feelings uh, that do not have certain connotations at all. So after war, when you return, those same things now have different meanings and layers of other things. So for example, when people come back into this town and they see a young man walking on a path with a machete, before the war, nobody would flinch or hesitate when they encounter that person. They would just think it's a young man going to harvest a crop, going to a farm. But after the war, because of things people had done with machetes, when people came across people like that, they hesitated. And they didn't know whether they should proceed or not. So how do you learn to stop doing that uh, when you return home? So you see that play out in, in this narrative. Another thing is also when you return and you hear somebody who you had known before and they come and you hear their voice, you also hesitate to turn around and look at them because you do not know what condition they are in what had happened to them in the war. And once you turn around to look at them, you become part of that burden of whatever had happened to them. Uh, so there are all these things that you see initially as this town comes alive. But another thing that occurs in this town, of course, they had to revive the storytelling. Uh, and so that begins. And so what I'm going to read to you is one of the first storytellings that occurs in this town uh, when everybody has... Uh, um, Returned. All these characters had returned to the town, and they began to tell stories uh, as a way to begin to put this medicine back into people again. So, <clears throat> the light from the fire painted the dark shadows of everyone on the walls of the houses behind them. The young people weren't as plentiful, and some sat reluctantly by the fire. The eager ones were the generation of Umu and Thomas, who heard of moments such as this from their parents and some exceptional ones like Hawa and Mada, who, despite what they had endured, had a joy within them that such a tradition sparked even more. 
The other few who had arrived in town without parents and roamed about, helping here and there to get some food, sat by themselves. They listened to the story, with one ear focused on the gathering and the other on God. No matter who was present and why, the entire town had come to hear a story from Mamakadi and from whoever else would be moved to tell. This was the tradition. The elders, mostly women, would tell a story and the other elders would join in afterward. Some nights it would go on until even children were called upon to retell stories they had heard. Tonight, Mamakadi stood up inside the circle and walked around the fire as she told the story, adjusting the wood every so often to make the fire brighter or duller, depending on the mood of the tale. Some of the boys who had sat away gradually came closer. Story, story, what should I do with you? She had shouted, the call for the teller to start. And the audience responded, Please tell it to us so we can pass it on to others. She went on a number of times until everyone was asking to be told a story. There was once a man who always complained about his condition and was unhappy with every aspect of his life, especially about his only pair of trousers, which had holes in them everywhere. Parts of his flesh could be seen through the trousers, so it looked from afar as though he had on a checkered pants. When he got closer, you could not help but laugh at the natural beautification of his trousers. Soon, all the young people whose pants had holes in them were referring to it as a new style, skin to cloth. The tailor in town was of course unhappy about this and blamed the man with the holes in his trousers for ruining his business. No one came to get things mended anymore. Natural beautification had taken over. The tailor followed the man everywhere waiting for the perfect time to steal and destroy his trousers. Late one afternoon, after the man had returned from his farm, he decided to bathe in the river. He took off his trousers and carefully washed them. Then he laid them on the grasses to dry and went into the river. He submerged himself in the water to get a nice soak. The tailor, who had been hiding in the bushes, decided this was his chance. But as he was preparing to move toward the trousers, another man came out of the bushes, took the trousers, and disappeared. When the man came out of the river, he couldn't believe his pants were missing. He called out, If this is some kind of a joke from gods or any human, I am not laughing. He waited a while, but no response. Then he saw the footprints of the thief and began laughing so hard, he fell into the water and struggled to pull himself out, still laughing. He said, there must be somebody worse off than I am, and if so, please enjoy whatever is left of my trousers. Thank you, God and gods, for not making me the poorest of men. He danced in the grasses while the tailor watched, still not happy, because he knew the thief would use the trousers. He wanted them destroyed. When the man walked down the path toward town, the tailor rose from hiding. He thought he should clean and cool himself off. He took off his clothes and dove into the river. The naked man heard the sound of the water and ran back thinking he could see who had stolen from him. He saw no one, only some fresh new clothes, long pants and a shirt. He looked around, but the tailor was deep under the water, enjoying its coolness, even the top of the river had calmed. The man danced as he wore the new clothes, thinking that this was a wonderful day. When the tailor came up for air, he noticed that he had nothing to wear. It was a strange thing to see a naked tailor running through town. <laughs> the gathering was in a fit of laughter. 
Colonel Ernest and Miller were the only ones to whom laughter didn't succeed in introducing herself. Ernest's eyes searched for Sila and his children. Watching their happy mood brought a stroke of peace in his heart. Colonel looked around to see whether he could determine who the thief had been. Miller had witnessed too many hardships to think about stories, to feel the functions of them. He got up and walked away as though the laughter was tormenting him. The children of Umu's generation laughed purely and repeated the funniest lines to one another. The adults laughed even more because they knew the story was true. The tailor was among them and the checkered trousers man was there too. But who was the trousers thief? No one admitted it. As usually, things are mended at such gatherings. After the laughter died down, the adults and the elders formed their own circle, leaving the children to themselves to talk about the stories. The adults and elders started a serious conversation about godliness. The imam and the pastor agreed that all human beings embody God within them. Then how do you explain what happened during the war, someone asked. There was no answer for a while, and then Pamoywa spoke. When we are suffering so much, I believe whatever godliness that is within us departs temporarily. During the war and all that it brought about, we as a people of this land chipped away at the embodiment of God within us and all the traces of goodness that were left after God departed. And now there are many who are empty vessels and therefore can easily be filled with anything. I think stories and the old ways will bring them in contact with life, with living and with goodliness again. Of course, these aren't the only things. There are practical measures that must be taken. There was silence among them, but the children were playing games, laughing and clapping. If God could be anywhere, this was where he or she was tonight. <clears throat> All right, so um, these are some of uh, the languages. So these characters, uh, they are living in this environment, and of course... Uh, things begin to go different, uh, differently in the way that they did not uh, um, think would happen so soon. And then they began to live with those new challenges. And the family of uh, Bokhari uh, leaves, one of the characters leaves uh, the, the village and tries to find a suitable place to live in the country. So you follow them moving around and they go to the capital city and of course the the other things that are in the capital city as well, uh, they begin to face. What also happens in post-war situations is that the population changes. Uh, whereas before, uh, you know, people are sort of scattered equally around the different regions and in the villages. Almost all the young, the, the, the younger people uh, move to the capital cities and big towns to look for opportunities. So while they are there, the older people do not have anybody to transmit the story to any longer. So this becomes another issue of its own. Now, uh, in Sierra Leone, we have this issue. So when you go as a young person and you go in through a town or a village, and the older people see you, they sit you down and try to tell you as many stories as they can. They're thinking, we've got one. Let's, <laughs> let's give him or her the story. But of course, they test your patience. Uh, because in order for somebody to take in a story deeply, you have to be a patient person. And so what they do is that they tell you, sit with us. Let's have something to drink. Let's have food. And they would deliberately drag things along. Now, if you are somebody who has lived maybe in New York and you, you think, oh, I got to go. I have to meet up with somebody. They say, okay, please go. <laughs> because it means you're not the, the, the perfect vessel to carry that story. Um, and what I mentioned earlier is this also the most important part of our oral tradition. 
besides the telling, is also the passing of the story. Because the stories would outlive us. Uh, they are the ones that will live beyond us. And so the most important part of it is that when you hear a story, you have to pass it along. Uh, that is stress all the time so that the story can live in others. And when somebody receives a story, uh, they, they can choose to do what they want with it. Uh, hopefully they will do something good with it. So when you write or tell a story, that story is no longer yours. It becomes whoever encounters it and what they choose to do with it. Um, so, for example, I've written one or two books. Whoever has read that story, what it did for them, that's their story now. I'm only the shepherd from afar. If somebody wants to know something more, maybe they ask me. But otherwise, it becomes whoever encounters it and what they choose to do with it. So I do hope uh, whatever story you've heard here tonight or what you would hear later in our conversation or what you will read and get from this book, you can pass it along. Uh, thank you so far for listening to me. Now I open it up to questions so that we can have uh, a discussion, comments, uh, advice on life, whatever you want to, to share. Please do come to the mic there. Uh, it's a small room enough. If you can come to it, just shout it and we can uh, have a conversation. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. Okay, so please do come to the mic. Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, uh, welcome. Excellent presentation. I have a question. Can you say a little bit about your foundation and also how can we help you out both financially and in other ways to participate to make sure this dream of yours becomes a reality in helping other people, young and old alike? Yes. Um, well, I have, a, I have a foundation, much to my reluctance. It's called the Ishmael Bear Foundation. <laughs> I, I did not want... Uh, the name, but uh, I was outvoted by my board, so <laughs> now you have it. Um, the idea of this foundation really started for me because I felt th the difference that had happened in my life, besides surviving the war and other things, was that I had access to opportunity, real opportunity, that allowed me to rediscover my own intelligence and choose to do something with it. And also, throughout my life, my life changed because as each given time in my life, when I was going through my difficult, difficult, different struggles, somebody stopped and did something not for themselves but for somebody else. And that changed the direction of my life. So I started this foundation with those uh, the sort of thinking in mind, thinking that with these uh, sort of feelings in mind that uh, uh, I wanted to give back uh, to people. So we, we operate in Sierra Leone mostly, uh, and we give scholarships to young people. Uh, to be able to go to school or to do whatever they want to do with themselves. To also, we tap into the intelligence to make them part of community development. So we don't just go and give somebody money and say, you do this. We ask them, what do you want to do with yourself? If it's not impossible, we will. So. And the reason why I'm saying this is because often uh, well-meaning people that want to help others can belittle the intelligence of the people they are helping. And then it doesn't work. Uh, I've been on the opposite end of it, where when I was a former child soldier, I hadn't come from the war uh, very recently at the time, uh, we'll be sitting around and people will be discussing what we should do with ourselves while we're sitting there. And we're looking at them thinking, you know, man, we may have been through the war, but we didn't lose all of our brain cells. <laughs> you know, we can still, we still have ambitions and dreams and things we want to do, you know. And uh, because what people do not understand is that to survive war requires remarkable intelligence. 
and, and strength, you know, and if you refocus that. So what we do, we tap into young people to make sure they are part of it. So that's what we do. So uh, we have a website. You can donate. We don't only need money. We also need skill set. Um, because often I think people think money is the only currency, but we also need some of these young people could have mentors. Uh, some of them want to do business. If somebody is a business person, they can help them to how to manage their books and do things. So we also want people who can offer skill set, not just money. So, um, yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, good evening. Um, I just wanted to ask a question. Uh, being a young black male. Uh, and uh, you said you're from Ghana, right? South Africa? Sierra Leone, sorry. Yes. The guy was. Yes, Sierra Leone. Uh, how did you deal with it? How do you deal with being a child uh, soldier? And, uh, and, and, and how would you, because here in Baltimore, we have, and how, and how, and how would you uh, encourage mentors like myself other young black men that mentor another black males mm. that do mentorship, how would you uh, encourage us to deal with the uh, young people and the young men who don't really have fathers in their life mm. and really don't have any hope? So that's yes. why they're out here killing, robbing, stealing, destroying other people's lives, selling drugs, selling weed, because they feel like no one cares about me, no one loves me, you know, I'm going to be like this all the days of my life. Well, I mean, I definitely have been, you know, I, 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 I have never been in a gang in an urban environment, but I do, I have been in a war and I can associate to a point in your life where you feel uh, you have no community, you have no love, you have no support, nobody cares about you, and you embrace violence and the community of violence is the only stability. And that pretty much is what happens, whether it's in a war or in a gang situation. Uh, because nowhere in the world, I believe, when people have a clear choice of a real opportunity and real so, so in their lives, they will choose to only have a violent life. It's when over and over again, maybe generations of your family and other people have come to disbelief in that possibility that you choose that. You know, and that's what happened in the war, for example. We've seen how people were killed. We thought, hey, man, being part of an army is the only way you can stay alive. And young people are so adaptable, you can be very good at that. If nobody stops you and tells you that you can use your intelligence differently. But even when that happens, you have to learn how to trust that person to know whether they really mean it. Because some people come and they go, they don't come back the next day. And then you go back to the same way. So for us as, as you know, Young black men, I think we have to live by example. We have to show others uh, that that life cannot allow you to even use your own intelligence for any long-term future. That uh, is only short-term gains, and that does not uh, do you any good at all. Um, you can't make a plan with that life. You can't live in peace with that life because you begin to distrust so many people to the point that your circle becomes quite small. And with more distrust, more violence, you understand? So I've been in that situation. What I've tried to do in my capacity around the U.S. is trying to use my experiences to mirror it with those experiences of young people in these sort of environments and try to explain to them that I'm not saying it is easy but if somebody like me can work hard to come out of it, uh, then anybody, if you put your mind to it, you can do it. 
But of course, this does not require the child. Just, I'm not naive enough to say that if you live in a gang environment, you should just walk down the street one day and say, I love peace because you may get shot. So I know the reality of it. I don't prescribe this sort of blind, peace-loving kind of thing to you. But rather, to talk to community and say we all have to do it together. We all have to show these young people instead of just... And I, 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 as you heard during the introduction earlier, I, am, um, I was a visiting scholar at Rutgers University uh, in Newark, the Newark campus. And if you know Newark, it's, it's a lot of gangs, the blood and the cribs are there. So I befriended members on both sides uh, because I thought to myself, here I am, a young man coming from a very violent background, and three or four blocks from where these gangs are, here's this university, and I have an office there, and, and they can even give me money to do research and do things. But if they go three, four blocks and see people who may look like me, they're afraid of them. And they don't want to. So I challenge the university to say, well, <laughs> if you can do this for me and I'm coming from far away, why can't you do it in your backyard? Why can't you? So we had a, a meeting. And uh, now the Newark police was not very happy because we decided to bring some members from there. <laughs> blood and the crypts at the university for a little dialogue and that the Newark police was not happy about it but um but again this, the, what i'm saying is that for the police particularly in this country and and the way the justice system is that it's always based on punitive measures there's an issue how do we punish somebody so that it, it's not really looking at the root cause of it how do we stop it so when we began to exchange stories we heard about some of these young people for example you see a young man in Newark who will call a Chinese food place and tell them, can you bring me uh, this amount of food, uh, what, $40, $60, and I have $100, do you have to bring to change? And when the guy comes, they beat him up and take the food. Now the police hears about this, and they try to look for those guys and arrest them and throw them in jail. What this is saying is that this child in America is hungry. What do we do to make sure that child doesn't do that? Nobody asked that question. The initial movement is that let's punish them. So when we began to bring these young people into the university, we realized that some of them were the most brilliant people I've met in my life. There was a young fellow who was a poet, and he came into the classroom, and these kids who were paying you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to learn poetry, he already knew poetry form more than they did. But if they ran across him on the street, they would think he's just a gangbanger, and they would avoid him and look at him with disdain and something. But he started coming to this class, and he would write poems, and he would recite them, and, and the professor loved him and said, you should come all the time and talk. So when I went to hang out with him, he went to his, his boys, and he said, oh, I was in the school, man. I was schooling these kids yeah, about poetry. And so now they all want to come and see him school the kids, and we're like, oh, no, okay, okay, we gotta, we got to organize a little bit. <laughs> can't just show up. Because all of a sudden you see all bloods with their, with their you know, red bandana coming up for the university and looking for me, and everybody be like, hey, man, what did you do? <laughs> like, no, 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 it just opened the door for, for, uh, for people to be curious, for people to know what else is possible. So all around the country, I've done this in prisons in California, just trying to challenge people that often it's easier for us to feel empathy for somebody who comes from so far away like me, but not for somebody who lives two blocks from you. You know, why is that, you know? And so we need to change the way we, th we do that, the way we think, you know. Because if you can give an ounce of that empathy to them, you will look at them differently, you know. And then things will, you know, they will feel that they are part of a community that actually expects something more of them than what it's al they're already doing, you know. Anyway, 
but uh, we we have to to do that all of us you know yes yes um, you clearly seem to have like much passion and intellect and even experiences both tragic and beautiful to help you move forward on your your mission but i'm i'm just wondering we had a conversation myself and some people that i came with about how do people maintain their their groundedness so i'm wondering how do you maintain maintain your groundedness and keep your peace without being bombarded by culture and even fame now yes you know, how do you do that well, I think it's a very it's, a, it's an it's an excellent question. How I maintain my grandness is because I've I've been mentioning this idea of community and and culture and values. As a young boy, even before the war came into my life, I had a taste of what it meant to be truly loved, what it meant to be part of a community, to have certain values, what it meant to understand that I was part of a community and that my life was not just for myself but for others as well. So I had a little bit of that in me, and I think these are the things that keep me grounded. Uh, regardless of who I am and what I do with my life, uh, I'm always that village boy, that kid who grew up in the village. I will never forget that. And I like that. You know, it makes me humble. And oftentimes people uh, don't like that because I think when you do certain things with yourself, people want to put you on a pedestal. And if you constantly refuse to be on there, some, it, it throws people off. <laughs> and I like that. I remember, for example, when my book, when I would go to some places, in New York, and they would send a car service to pick me, uh, pick me up, and then I would already be there because I would have taken the train. And then they would get really mad and be like, how come you don't take the car? Like, the train is faster. I don't have to sit in traffic. <laughs> also, I can get to see people if I'm in this car with somebody driving, probably doesn't want to drive the car, and I'm there by myself trying to have a conversation with him, or I don't want to have it with me. You know what I mean? So I like to, to, to do certain things like that. You know, And sometimes I'm in places where people, I've also been in places where I've seen how other people, what other people expect of somebody like me, right? Uh, I remember one time I was in the Greenboro in, in Virginia. I was there giving a talk. I was one of the speakers with former Secretary General of the UN, Kofi Annan, so I arrived. Uh, and the guy at the front desk immediately said to me, what are you here for? Are you, are you here for catering or for uh, part of the music, uh, the band? And I said, uh, well, which one is, needs somebody to... to, to <laughs> You know, I, I thought to myself, this is good material for me. I'm a writer. I like to understand how people are, are thinking about things. And he says, well, I think the kitchen staff is, is short of somebody. I said, okay, I'll get right on it. So I went. <laughs> you know, I, I did some stuff before when I was in university. So the natural reaction would have been, of course, at some point I've been angry at things like this. would have been to be angry. But I wanted to find a way to have this person arrive at their own prejudice without me pointing it out so strongly at them but find a way to do it, you know. So I went. I started moving things around. And, all that, and then one of the managers came and said, what are you doing? This is the speaker. Why is he setting the table? <laughs> <laughs> and then I got my bag and went, you know. But it was a point that I wanted to make subtly, not. Of course, there are sometimes where you have to make the point a little louder than that. And with, but anyway, so for me, um, I will always be that simple person. And also from where I'm coming from, I know where I'm coming from, and I know how life is fragile. You know, I know how moments of our existence are fragile, how things could change. With that awareness, I think I'm always careful about how I do, because you don't know, you meet somebody, you do not know when you're going to meet them and in what circumstance. And that could determine whether you live or die in certain situations, really. In the war, I learned that uh, the hard way, you know. 
So this is not to say walk around thinking life is going to fall apart all the time, but that awareness is key to have in the back of your mind. You know? And as you say, life is also beautiful. So uh, I've had a taste of both, and um, yeah, and those things keep me grounded. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yes, thank sir. you. Um, I, I read the, I read the first book, and I, I really appreciated it. Um, and uh, I don't remember all a lot of things, but one of the scenes that struck me was when. Um, when you kind of came out of the war, you were in the city, and there were a bunch of a bunch of smaller boys, and there was like a, a, an elderly man there who was kind of helping out, and then um, the boys got mad when they beat beat the guy up really bad, hmm. and um, and I'm 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 wondering um, how does like how do you and how do other people who have experienced similar atrocities, how do you heal, and then how do you stay healed? Like how do you, like like how do you not not run back or not regress? Mm. Well, first of all, it's t- it takes time. I think often people are interested in quick fixes, but when it comes to trauma, particularly from war, there are two kinds of trauma from this kind of madness. There's, there's a physical one, which is you have a wound. Uh, those are the easiest one to heal. The psychological one for war, that's the most difficult because it's private. You can't see it. Um, but it, it takes a toll on you because your mind is with you 24-7. You cannot leave it behind. <laughs> so sometimes it can really torment you. So time. There was time for me. But then there was also, with that time, as I mentioned earlier, if you're able to do something with yourself, you build newer memories that then begin to compete with only the memories of the world that you have. So, for example, if I think about a car, the sound of a car going fast, instead of thinking about the war, I can also think about... When I was a young man, I just decided I want to ride, drive a nice car somewhere in California, and I did that, right? So then I have two competing memories of things, you know. So slowly, you build memories that outweigh, but it takes time. But the point I want to make is that you can never forget. So healing, also people think about healing as kind of you cleanse yourself, you wash your brain, you can never think of it, you forget. The more you try to forget, I promise you, is the more it's going to haunt you even stronger. So what you learn to do is to live with it. Slowly, you learn to live with it. You learn not to react. Certain reactions, a certain uh, sort of ways of being, you will not change. My awareness, for example, is much stronger than I think anybody who has never experienced war or never been in violence. When I walk down the street, I'm paying attention much deeper than somebody else, you know, which is good for them. I, I like that naivety about things. It's, it's beautiful in its own way. But some of these things can also be useful to me. So there's also the time building the memories, but also learning to live with it by refocusing some of the energies and some of the reactions that you've used for something positive. For example, when I came out of the war, I had insomnia. I could not sleep. I still have a little bit of it, but before it was worse, to the point that I could only sleep two hours a night if I was lucky. And with those two hours, they were broken, you know. (laughs) So a lot of people said to me, hey, you should see this doctor, get this medicine and sleep. And I thought to myself, absolutely not. I was a young man in university and I have insomnia. This is the best thing that could happen to a young man in college. <laughs> you, know? you understand? So what, me, what seemed like a problem, I, I refocused it. So I could study. I could read the, the extra notes. I could go out and party and I would come back and study because I was still off, you know. So what could be a problem? I used it to my own advantage. I also have discipline. Being a soldier, 
from the world I came from, if you're told to sit somewhere and guard a place with your life, you don't move. For two, three hours, four hours, you can sit there. I can use that same discipline to sit and do my work and study and do something useful for me. So I refocus things. But of course, it didn't happen overnight. It took time for me with people in my life also that said to me, you can refocus these things, and I did it. I remember when I was first in high school, you can also use these things destructively for yourself. You know, these, these sort of sharpness and, 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 and things. I remember I started on that path, but I had people who corrected me. When I started school here, I was in high school. My math teacher, because I'm very observant, I realized that my math teacher was not the most, um, to put it, she was a bit lazy in the sense that she didn't pay attention to, uh, to things. So, I paid attention on the first day when we did the assignment in the class. If you did your homework, you got 60% for doing your homework. And then 20% uh, for one exam and 20% for writing about math, some essay. So I already made my math. If I fool her that I did all this assignment and I get 60, I write a paper, I get, and then I got 80. So if I don't do well on the exam, I know I got a grade, you know. So... And how I paid attention to this is that when she came to see whether we did our homework, she just looked to see whether you did it, but not close enough. So the first day I did it, and the next day I just recopied the same thing over and over for the entire semester, and I'll just show her, and she'll mark. You understand? So I could have gone down that path, and it would have been destructive for me. But of course, my mom caught up on it and said, what are you doing? You know, you have to, you can do the problem, just use that energy to do instead of finding a way. You understand? So what for me is refocusing all these things, you know? Um, yeah. I hope it made sense what I said. Yes. <laughs> um, I noticed in your book, A Long Way Gone, that you talked, or you mentioned rather, um, different terms in the Islamic faith, mm. like the imam and um, certain other people came up, but there was no real mention of God or religion as a motivating factor, mm. at least none I could really tell and point out and I was wondering what was your ultimate motivation in surviving um, well I, I'm, 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 I believe in God definitely uh, I grew up uh, I'm, and I am a, a Muslim my grandfather was an imam so I, I grew up reading the Quran and then he was friends with the pastor and the reverend in town so he sent me to a Christian secondary school so I read the Bible uh, in Sierra Leone, is one of those countries that's very religiously tolerant, you know, where families are half Christian, half Muslim, and everybody knows the Bible and the Quran. So when we get together, people read the Al-Fatiha and the Lord's Prayer. And when people are visiting us, they look at us, but these people are crazy, but we are not. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so during the war, when the war was going on, all the things that I was seeing, I really had a dilemma believing that God loved or cared for us because of the things that were occurring to us, you know, to the point that I stopped thinking about that. So surviving in the war initially became trying to find my family. And when I lost my family, it became trying to live for the new family that I now had acquired, which is the young boys and, and girls that were part of my squad. When I came out of the war, I often wondered why did I survive? Why, you know? And for many years, then I began to realize that, well, I may never know why, but I should make this chance useful. You know, this second chance that I've gotten, I should do something with it. So for me, there has always been something else is happening that was beyond me. 
that was bigger than me that allowed me to survive. And I believe it was because of God that I survived the war. When I came out of the war, I didn't think so. I thought I was a good soldier. I knew how to fight, you know, of course, maybe. But some of the things that I survived, the chances of surviving them were so little that there's no way I could have come out. Sometimes I think about some of the things that I've been in, in war, and I think to myself, how did I come out of that? Because a lot of people did not, you know. So, with religion, in Sierra Leone, I, I practice, uh, you know, Muslim, uh, you know, I'm a Muslim generally, and I went to church. Uh, and then the family that adopted me in the United States is Jewish. <laughs> so then we went to temple, and at some point my mother, who's Jewish, decided she was going to practice Buddhism. And then we did that part. <laughs> so I have many religions in my life. So I'm, I'm somebody who believes that godliness can, can be sought in different ways. And we all embody godliness within us. And I think as long as uh, there's a pure heart somewhere, you know, and Syrian, we have a joke that says, whatever religion anybody brings to us, we will practice it. Because who knows on Judgment Day who's right? You know, so at least our chances have increased, you know. <laughs> so we know whoever is right, we'll be like, yeah, we're with them. Yeah, I know you, man, you know. <laughs> so that's how we do it. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> the guys that were in the war with you, the ch- you know, the child soldiers hmm. that survived. Yes. There are, there are friends that survived uh, the war that are, some are living in Sierra Leone, some are living abroad, uh, that we all have become family because of what we went through, became brothers and sisters. And uh, yeah, so there are some. A lot didn't, but a good number of people who survived are doing well. Some struggled for a little bit because what happened, I was fortunate. You know, you read my book, you may think, oh, why is this any? I was fortunate. The second time around, I wasn't dragged into a war. Because I had this passport, I was able to run away from the country quicker than most people would. Some of my friends who didn't were re-recruited a second time around in the war and went through the same thing again. And the reason why I ran is because I knew that would happen. Um, And so some of them, it took a while for them to regain themselves again. Um, But we supported each other and and things like that. Thank you. The story that you told when you were young and you were asked at school to bring in a baby picture, I found that incredibly poignant. Um, you dealt with it with creativity that obviously blossomed so amazingly later. Um, Baltimore is home to a lot of refugees and asylum seekers. Um, I'm here with a friend who works very closely with, with them. Um, what would you suggest for the average person uh, to help them avoid saying the word that inadver- inadvertently wounds or the uh, making assumptions that inadvertently cause pain to people, to children, to others who are coming from very different experiences and who cannot take for granted so many of the things that we can hear. Yeah. Well, I think, I think all of us who are coming here, uh, maybe I shouldn't speak for it, but I, I don't want people to feel bad that they have opportunities. I think everybody should have opportunities. Rather, I always say to my friends when I was in school that I want you to appreciate what you have, to know that many people around the world would do anything to have what you have, the fact that you can go to school in the morning and have. So for, our, for, for refugees, for people coming, I think the most important thing is to get to know them, is to really listen to them and to understand that these are people coming from their countries, and some of them had had a life in their country that was very meaningful, and now they're trying to figure it out in another culture, sometimes with language barriers. 
and different things like that. So it's try just to understand them, hear their story, but also always include them in the decisions that are made for them so that they, they are part of it. Because often, as I mentioned earlier, people are well-meaning, but sometimes they could move so quickly they forget to include the people that they're actually helping in that process. And then what happens? First of all, you paralyze the person's capacity to know how things are done. You know, then they don't know. You know, the next time they're faced with a problem, they don't know how to deal with it because, and you're not always going to be there to rely on. So I think it's good to empower people by making them part of the solutions that you find for them. Sometimes you'll be, you'll be, you'll be shocked. You'll be really uh, impressed by the thinking, you know, because often when we're in a situation, we, you know, you've lived with, I've lived in this country for, for quite a while. And sometimes when somebody comes from back home for the first time and I stop myself just to see things from their perspective, it's very enlightening sometimes what they're seeing and what we cannot see anymore because we've been here. Maybe we think we understand certain things. So sometimes just to stop and think you can renew how you do things a little bit. Yeah, so that's why. Oh, just, you know, respect their humanity as well and their cultures and Okay, the last question, please. Hi, um, you talked about how your culture and your connection to your roots really grounded you. And you kind of mentioned in your last answer about how um, kind of in the U.S. it's easy to get a new culture where you don't really see as much mm-hmm. of maybe what you saw before. How do you now keep connected to the culture that you came from now that you're in the U.S., now that you're in moving around different religions, different everything all around? Well, I don't know what it was, but there was something within me that was very urgent when I first came to the U.S. You know, as I mentioned, I was taken into a Jewish family, white Jewish family. So they did not speak my languages, and my mom was a very typical New York woman. She, her kitchen was the cleanest I've ever seen. She never cooked <laughs> until I came. So the first few nights, we already had a little cultural uh, altercation, which is that, you know, as an African boy, I expected my mother to cook for me. So I said, hey, you're going to make some food. And she says, well, I'm not your slave. Why do you think I'm going to cook for you? And I said, oh, that's not what I meant, you know. <laughs> you know, I mean, her reaction was like, you know, I'm a, you know, independent woman. I'm not cooking for you. And I tried to explain to her that where I come from, cooking for your child or cooking for your husband is a way of showing love, you know. So anyway, we went over that. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> there were some cultural things that needed to be understood on, on both sides. But for somehow, there was something within me that, that I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to have to adapt somehow to this culture. But I knew at the same time that people would always know that I'm not from here. So what would happen if I lose my heritage? Then I will be nowhere. You understand? Somehow, when I was a young man, this just hits me one day. And I thought to myself, well, my family, they love me, but they can't help me. They can't speak the languages with me. So I got to find people that I can speak my languages with. I got to make sure I stay connected to my country to call people back home, to keep that value and that culture within me all the time, because otherwise I will lose myself. And losing one's culture and one's heritage starts with the language. You lose the language, you're already halfway there. And in Sierra Leone, when you go back home, when you land at the airport, one of the first things they do is that they speak the various languages to you. If you can no longer speak any of them, they say you're no longer one of us. Even if you look like us, because you, you've lost the culture. A language comes with, you assume culture with language. So, 
So I started being very deliberate about it. Sometimes I would speak to myself. I'm probably one of those people you encounter on the street in New York walking and talking to themselves, you know. Because I would deliberately have conversations with myself in my languages. I walked down, if I was doing my homework, I would repeat so that I wouldn't forget. There was just something within me that says, you've got to keep that. And everywhere I went, every time I spoke, people would say, where are you from? And I would say, oh, Brooklyn, Manhattan. They would say, no, where are you really from? And I thought, all right. So I, you know, so I try to keep that. But it's not easy when you're young because you're impressionable. You want to fit in. There are things around you and things like that. So I really had to work out. And then when my family understood that this was the case, then they fought out to find uh, situations for me in the summer where I can you know, have access to my own culture and things like that. You know, and they really pushed for that, you know. So I think that really helped me a lot. And often I say to friends of mine who adopted uh, adopted kids from different cultures that they should do that too. Never try to cut the kid from wherever you've adopted. Encourage them to always be curious to know about it, right? Because at the end of the day, it's going to come back at some point. And if they've ostracized themselves for too long, it becomes difficult to find your identity. So I'm always, people ask me always that, well, well, how do you define yourself? I always say to them, I am a Sierra Leonean with some American tendencies. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I find out about these tendencies when I go back home. And I'm like, ah, okay. Yeah, that's not how it's done here, you know. But, uh, but, but I love, uh, and every culture has its beauties. I think you can always find a middle ground where you can take the best of every culture. If you're fortunate to live in two cultures, I think it's a great thing. You can take the best of both places and, and make your, your something. Yeah? But yeah. So thank you, thank you. all for coming and for your questions. I will be uh, out there signing some books. So, oh, here yeah, actually. So.